Morning, everybody. I have, uh, we're going to return to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 as we begin a new series. Um, actually, we're beginning a new series of series. Uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But there are a couple of things I want to highlight. I know Mike talked about the books. I just want to mention this uh, as well, that um, if you are uh, a dad and would like to get a simple read, the beauty of this book is illustrated by a conversation I just had. Um, first of all, it's Bible stories, epic stories, uh, presenting principles from biblical characters. Patrick Morley has written a number of books, particularly two men. I was just talking to C.J. Davis, and C.J. is always, he actually is an active reader, but he always is saying to me every time I ask him what book he's reading, he said, oh yeah, I read that, but he'd only read the first chapter or so. And that uh, happened again this morning. He says, have you read so-and-so? And I said, well, I've read part of it. He says, yeah, I read the first chapter. I said, I've got the book for you. You need to go there and get this book because you can read one chapter and you'll get the whole, you'll feel like you read a whole book. To which he replied, well, that means I only have to read three pages. <laughs> so, so if you're like C.J., it's hopeless. But otherwise, I would suggest, I mean, you can, you can read through one chapter Get the complete story on a guy, put it aside, read it in a couple of days, few weeks, pick it up again and read another. But there's some great principles there, and they're there for you here on Father's Day at the, at the Hub, out in the lobby. We have a number of guests with us today from all over the world. We have, uh, uh, I saw Vera and Ayrton Mora. I know they were in the last service. They are missionaries we support in Brazil. We have uh, Dave and Carol Sue, they come back in? That's so typical. When he preaches, I come back in. Um, uh, the, the Mercs are here. They have been with us for many, many years. He was my first and most challenging intern I've ever had. Uh, they're out in the lobby. We have the Fishers. I know they're in here, right? Would you guys stand for a minute? Come on. Okay, they're scattered around. Okay. Do, do any of our missionaries know that going to church is important? Um, <laughs> all right. I know, Carol, uh, that I want to mention a couple of other things to you. Um, there are two other families, and if you get, I have an email newsletter I send out called Musings from Pastor Mark. If you don't get it, you could let them know at the Hub. We'd love to have you on it. But basically this week I talked about two families in our church and I wanted to highlight them this morning. The first is Jack and Carissa Eisenbaugh. They're a part of our Young Married Ministry. Um, they have not only the, the son they're holding, they have two boys that uh, Carissa is pregnant with. They're at 19 weeks. And uh, they have had, um, they have identical twin boys that she's carrying. Recently, they found out that one of the boys um, was struggling to get nourishment from the placenta. Um, and so they've been wrestling with what to do. It, was fairly, it is a serious thing. It could even endanger both of them. They had two more appointments this past week to see if he would be strong enough to uh, have a laser surgery done, which I'll read just a couple of words about here in a moment. Both appointments, Tuesday and Friday, went well. Uh, the viability was, was encouraging. And so they are going to have, and this is what is going to be taking place tomorrow. On Monday, the surgeons will perform a significant surgery 
in which they will use a laser to block the blood vessels that communicate between the two fetuses. Separating the twins' blood flow is like functionally separating the placenta, allowing each twin to develop independently and both to draw directly from the placenta, which both need. It's a big, it's a big operation, a big prayer request. We want to be praying for the two boys and secondly, uh, Harold Ebersol and Sean have been missionaries of our church for over 30 years um, to the country of Bangladesh. And Harold is a marathoner in phenomenal physical shape. He was struggling with feeling exhausted, having trouble eating just in the last couple of weeks. Finally, got blood tests that shockingly determined that he has leukemia. Um, he, this Wednesday, went in for another doctor's appointment, and his white blood count had grown another 100,000, so they immediately sent him to University of Penn, where he still is, in the oncology department. On Thursday, he had four blood transfusions. Marin and I saw him and Sean, yes, Friday. He was doing better. They are, now, they, have, they are now testing, and it takes about a week. He'll know the latter part of this coming week uh, which type of leukemia he has. There is two varieties he could have. One is called CLL, um, which is a chronic form of lymphonic leukemia, which is less severe and would enable him to begin his cancer treatments as an outpatient. The other is acute uh, lymphatic leukemia, much more aggressive, would probably mean he has to stay in, and it's very, very serious. Um, he will find that out soon. Uh, we want to be praying for both he and Sean. They were planning to go back to Bangladesh uh, in September. I actually had Harold scheduled to preach on July 8th, um, but... All of that's been put on hold, uh, at least at this point. So I'd like to, I'd like to just pray um, together. Lord, we depend on ultrasounds and other tests to show us what is taking place in utero, but you are the God that sees all things. You are the God that is described as forming us in our mother's womb. You knit us together there. And Lord, you have created these two boys. And God, it is our prayer that in tomorrow's procedure, you would give great and unusual skill to the doctor. Lord, we would pray that you would oversee this we thank you for the way you have given him good reports this week, and I pray for Jack and Carissa. God, even this afternoon and tonight, may there be a peace that is only understandable with you. Quiet their hearts. Help us to know how to love and support them. I pray also for Harold and Sean, and Lord, thank you for the the soul peace you have given to them. We pray for Harold um, as the Apostle John prayed that, that he would, that his body would prosper even as his soul does. That Lord, you know our heart's request would be that it would be the CLL, not the acute form. 
God, direct, oversee, comfort, um, make yourself known, uh, sustain Harold and, and Sean, I pray, and, and help us as a, as a family uh, to know how to support both these couples through this, this season of their journey. Now, God, direct us as we open your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning a series today on the book of Romans. Without question, the book of Romans holds a prominent place among all of the 66 books of the Scripture. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, said this about the book of Romans, it is really the chief part of the New Testament. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. John Calvin said this, if we've gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale, who translated the first Bible into English, said about the book of Romans, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and also a light and a way to the whole of Scripture. But there is a striking thing about the book of Romans today. The biggest question that really is being asked about the book of Romans is simply, how do we read this book? How do we look at it? Uh, from what vantage point can we look at this book? What is it and what was it intended to be? Because that affects how we read it. And there are two particular ways of looking at the book of Romans somewhat diametrically opposed. And the latter one that I'm going to mention is the predominant one uh, among students of the book of Romans today, particularly liberal scholars, but also some uh, of a more of an evangelical branch. The historic view of, of looking at the book of Romans from the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s up until recently has been to look at it as somewhat of a systematic theology book. Um, that it is a, a book, as Philip Melanchthon, the, one of the church uh, reformers, said, it is a compendium of Christian doctrine. It, this is the vertical approach. Uh, and this is the idea that the book of Romans is really, what it's talking about is our relationship to God. That it, the focus of it is how we as, as sinners, rebels who have gone away from him can be brought back into a relationship with God, what it means to not be under the old way of, of, of the law of sin, but now we can be under grace and brought into relationship with Christ, that everything's vertically related. And so the way the book is looked at is, and this is a common way of looking at New Testament books, Many of the books, especially those written by Paul, tended to have the first part of the book would be theological or, or talking about our, our position, who we are, what we have, what God has done. And then the second part would be about our practice, the practical part. Well, in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8 is theological. Chapters 12 through 16 is practical. But you may notice I, I missed some. Romans 1 through 8, theological. Romans 12 through 16, practical. And then there's this middle section, Romans 9 through 11. And for many, particularly those that really look at the book as vertically related, 
this middle part's a little bit of a conundrum to them because it, it, it doesn't seem to fit the flow of, of, of that. It talks about the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles and God's plan for history with those people groups. And, and it doesn't seem to fit this vertical thing with a relationship with God. And so many biblical uh, commentators, and actually when I, when I was taking uh, Bible classes in college, I was taught this, that the book of Romans, actually chapters 9 through 11, are a parenthesis. Uh, you know, it's more like Paul was, was writing chapters 1 through 8, he's cooking along, and he goes, oh, oh, man, I should mention this. And he deviates and goes into this parenthetical thought, and then he jumps back into his argument and trucks through through the last few chapters again. That's one way of looking at the book of Romans. There's another way, that, and, and so Romans 1 through 8, and Romans uh, particularly are the, are the grand focus of the book, who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, and then chapters 12 through 16, how we live that out in practical experience, justification, sanctification. The modern way of looking at the book of Romans is to not look at it from a vertical standpoint, but more of a horizontal standpoint, that the book of Romans is actually about it is a manual on getting people along with each other. It is really addressing ethnic and, and racial tensions. And the way that, that it is portrayed then is that Romans 9 through 11 is actually not the, the parenthesis. It's the climax of the book. It's the central part of the book. And that Romans chapter 1 through 8 are just a preface that is sort of giving, you know, a foundation to how we're able to do this. But, but it's Romans 9 through 11 where it's talking about the relationship of the people groups that's the most important part. Uh, those that would probably identify themselves as liberal scholars are definitely embracing that perspective. Some evangelicals have. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a middle road because I think, to me, the best evangelical commentaries that are being written are those which are trying to merge together both the vertical and the horizontal. That Paul is talking about our relationship with God, but this is a real book written to real people in real time. It is not a systematic theology book. It is a book that is talking about how to live life and, and not only with God vertically, but with one another. It is, it is strongly influenced by Paul's concern between people groups and relationships that were going on. There are many indicators that Paul was concerned about both levels Vertical, horizontal, including how he opens and closes the letter. I'd like to read verses 1 through 6, which is really the, the focus we'll have this morning. Romans 1, verses 1 through 6. Here's what we read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In these six verses, there are four particular themes that Paul introduces us to. And in those themes... 
he highlights these six terms. He says, first of all, I'm writing the gospel. He says in verse 3, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, God's gospel, he says. God's good news to humanity is founded in Jesus Christ. The second thing he says, this gospel is to you Jews, he says, it's your gospel. It was hidden and written and forecast and prophesied in your writings in ages past, but they were always looking to Christ. So this is your gospel. This is your Christ. This is your salvation. This is your story. Then he says the third thing, the gospel of Christ, that it was prophesied and anticipated among the Jews for generations. He says third, and this is now pronounced to all ethnicities. The word Gentiles here is the word ethnos, to all ethnicities, all people groups. And then the fourth thing he says is this. This is all to the glory of God. And Paul says, this is what I'm going to write about. The striking thing is, Paul starts his book with those four things, and he ends his book. You know, some of you have heard that a letter, the most powerful part of a letter, they say, is the P.S. at the end. That's what you remember the most. It sort of jumps off the page. It's good to remember as you write your letters. But the P.S. is given to us in Romans, the last chapter, chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. And here's what he says. Now think of those four themes. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. He says, this is for Jews. This is for you. This, this was hidden among your writings. And then he goes on to say, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. Third theme, so that all the Gentiles, all the ethnicities might come to know, might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And fourth, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul says this, I'm writing vertical stuff. I'm writing about the gospel, how you can be brought into a personal relationship with God. That's the good news. And the whole focus of this is the glory of God. He says this is a vertical book. But then he says this, but I'm also reminding you that this gospel is, is for you Jews. You've been anticipating this. This is your story. But also all you other ethnicities it's your gospel as well. He starts the book. He ends the book. He's basically saying, this is what this book is about. It is about these themes. It is vertically related. It is horizontally related. The book of Romans is written to show how the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses ethnic, cultural, racial tensions, particularly those within the church. It provides a theological platform and a practical platform for addressing differences, and diversity of every brand. I would suggest to you that there is no topic today that is more dominating the news reports in our country than racial and ethnic tensions. This book was written for just such a moment. It is a practical book. It is a book that's saying this is theology with shoes on it. This isn't just cerebral stuff that you debate and, and, and discourse about. This is to live out, and this is going to speak into your culture and your lives. It speaks to ethnic and racial tension. Now, if you're like me, 
I'm one of those guys that when I listen to somebody speak, I always have a what about, what about, what about. So this is a what about that I would have. I'm hoping a few of you would have this what about too. It's possible you're out there saying, eh, I just, wait a minute. I see what you're saying because the word ethnic is there. But you sort of slid in the concept of racial tension as well. Sort of make this sound like a really relevant book, Mark. But I don't see anything about race in the book of Romans. I don't see anything about race in what Paul said. He's talking about ethnicity. Ethnicity and race are not the same, are they? No, at least in our understanding, culturally, they're not. The, the, the term race is associated with physical characteristics. Um, people are black. People are white. People are of narrower eyes, uh, more Asian descent. There are their physical features. That's race. Ethnicity is common national or cultural background. So how can you pull race into this and say this addresses racial tensions? Well, understand, the Bible does not ever address race because it does not consider race an issue. Now, now track with me here because this to me is really important for us to get. It doesn't ever tell us someone is white or black or red tone. It doesn't ever do that. It doesn't talk about someone's race. It just talks about people. It talks about their ethnicities. It talks about their cultural background, but it does not focus on race. Now, does that mean race does not matter? Does that mean God has race? I'm arguing exactly the opposite here. It does argue cultural background. It never defines people by color because it was so patently clear to God, to the writers of the Bible, that people are the same regardless of skin tone or how much fatty tissue you have around your eyes that makes your eyes more narrow or more round. Race literally is skin deep. It is irrelevant in the conversation and so you might say, okay, well then why are you, if, if the Bible does not mention race, why do you think Romans addresses racial tensions? Because in our fallen world, race has caused people to have different life experiences. They have different cultural backgrounds. Race is now a part of people's ethnicity and cultural experience because people are treated differently because of race, they have different cultural experiences. They interpret authority differently because by race they have been treated differently. So now race has caused them to have a different cultural experience, a different ethnos, if you will. So race does matter, but race is a part of one's ethnic experience. It's interesting that a lot of people mentioned that in, in the book of Acts, this guy from Ethiopia, the Ethiopian eunuch is there. And many people say, well, at that time, everybody from Ethiopia was black. So he must have been black. But the interesting thing, and he probably was. I mean, I, think, I don't know anybody that doesn't think he was. But the Bible doesn't say he was a black. Why? It doesn't matter. 
The issue was not race. The issue is not skin tone. The issue is not uh, skin deep stuff. But race matters culturally today because people have different experiences. People have different life stories. People have different interpretations because of how they might have been treated or their background has been treated. So I would say everything that Paul is talking about in the book of Romans about relating to one another certainly includes the experience of race because it is part of our ethnos. It is a part of our cultural interpretations. I'll try to illustrate that as we go forward. We bring races together because we are recognizing different cultural backgrounds, different life experiences, different experiences with authority, different perspectives on life. Romans is addressing racial harmony as part of the different ways people experience life. This book is incredibly practical. He is going to give us theological. Now, I want to say this, and I said this in the earlier service. I don't know how you're hearing what I'm hearing. But I, I really am asking you, I'm not just giving you permission, I'm asking you if, if what I am trying to say, God and his perspective in Romans is as far from racism as one could possibly be, he doesn't even tell us what color people were in the Bible, ever. It doesn't matter. But your experience because of your race does matter because it forms your ethnos. It's part of your cultural back. So it absolutely matters because you bring those perspectives to the church, to life, and, and others need to understand it. You need to understand that there's processing. But if you're hearing me say something different, I, I really would like to know because I, it really matters to me that, that I have a chance to hear you and how you're hearing me. You understand that? Okay. All right. So, what is the message of Romans? The message of Romans, to me, is twofold. Chapters 1 through 11 show how the gospel of grace unites people theologically. He's going to then show us in Romans 12 through 16 how the gospel of grace unites people practically. We're going to see this illustrated as we walk through quickly this morning. Now, there's a reason that this was all necessary, and that is because of the situation in Christendom. Here's what was going on in Christendom at this time. This is about A.D. 56-57. In A.D. 50, they had met together at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was the head of the, Roman, the Jerusalem church, and it's all a Jewish church at this time. They're all Jews there. And, but now the Gentiles are starting to be brought in, and it's causing confusion because now you're merging cultures, and they had lots of conversation and how to deal with this and what to do. And and that's playing itself out every day in the church of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. These are real issues, and Paul is right at the epicenter of the whole conflict. He has people on both sides mad at him. The Jews, the, the Christians of Jewish background are certainly mad at them, some of them anyway, because they feel he sold himself out. They're questioning him. They, they feel that he is not embracing things that, that are of value to them because, you see, People of Israelite background are also of an ethical background, ethnical, ethnic background. They are bringing their own cultural understanding. They aren't just bringing religious beliefs. They are also bringing traditions, assumptions, convictions, expectations, values. They brought a culture. They brought a way of, of thinking life. 
And the Jews thought Paul is denying and, and demeaning some of their traditions. Some of the Gentile Christians thought he was a traditionalist, a legalist. At this time, Paul is really feeling the squeeze. He really wants the two branches to, to come together and to value each other, that there be oneness because he feels we're, this is the greatest glory of the gospel is that there is, a, there is a oneness that supersedes any cultural differences. And so one of the practical things Paul did was he saw the, the Christians there in Jerusalem, many of them had been ostracized for their faith, they'd been thrown out of the temple and their local synagogues, Many of them had financially uh, entered into poverty because of it. So Paul, for the last two years, has been going around the whole Roman Empire as he's visiting churches that have been started. Now some of them are predominantly Gentile churches, different ethnicities than Israel, and he's been raising money from them. If you read the New Testament, you'll see this. He talks about this in almost, well, many of his letters. A number of his letters, he's talking about, you know, uh, uh, thanks to your generosity, giving to the gift for the saints in Jerusalem. goes on. He does it in Romans. We'll see it in a moment. Why was he doing that? It was so important to Paul because he was trying to develop a spirit of solidarity. He was trying to say, look, brothers in, in, in Jerusalem, all of these brothers that are out there that are Gentiles, you know, of different ethnicities, they've given joyfully to support you guys. And, he, and he's looking forward to the day when he delivers this and it can be dispersed among the, the poor believers there in Jerusalem. But he has a deep concern. And he tells us about it in the book of Romans. Here's what he says in Romans 15. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers of Jerusalem. First of all, I said that, you know, they won't kill me, the, the, the unbelievers. But then listen to this. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. It is a remarkable statement. He's saying, I know the tension of animosity within the, the, the body of Christ and even within the mother church in Jerusalem, I know that the tension that they feel towards me, that there are many Jewish believers in Jesus that doubt me. Some condemn me for disloyalty to my Jewish heritage. Some of them likely feel to accept my offering is to endorse my liberal policies about circumcision, the Sabbath, worldliness, personal convictions, all of which Paul was accused of regularly. It might bug them so much that might, they might not even take this financial gift on principle. It's an astonishing thing. He's genuinely concerned that they are so uh, intense in their frustration with Paul's embracing other cultures into the church. It is not just their beliefs. It's their traditions. It's the way they do life. It's the way they perceive things. It's what they consider to be worldly and, and others don't consider to be worldly. And so, man, if we take this guy's money, if we take the money of these believers, well, we're endorsing everything. And Paul says, I hope they don't do that because it's going to kill the whole spirit of solidarity I want to have in the body of Christ. This was a real thing going on. But it was even more acute in the city of Rome, in the churches in Rome. 
And this, I, I, Paul was writing in AD 56 or 57. This has been pretty conclusively shown to be true. I know some of you hate history. I know some of you love history. I'm hoping you'll all see the value of it with this little story. We need to know what was happening in Rome right now. You see, in AD, again, he's writing in AD 56, 57. AD 49, there is a, a, the emperor of Rome is Claudius. And the Roman historian Suetonius records that the Roman emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome in AD 49. Now, we may say, who is the Roman historian Suetonius? I mean, why do we take his word for anything? All right, if we want to throw out the Roman historian Suetonius, let's try Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. And he found a Jew, this is Paul, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. What's happening? All of a sudden, anyone of Jewish descent has been forced out of the city. There are different arguments historically why that happened, but I'm not into that right now. I'm just saying it happened. It happened for five years until A.D. 54, the latter part, when Claudius died and another fairly non-Christian supporter became emperor named Nero. But Nero did do one thing. He allowed all the Jews to come back into the city. Here's why I'm saying all this, and we, we need to wrap our arms around what's going on to understand the book of Romans. The churches that were started throughout the Roman Empire, most of them had Jewish foundations. Paul did that. Every city he went to, the first thing he did was visit the synagogue and try to lead Jews to Jesus, and then he eventually started adding Gentiles as well. He did it in every city. Many of the churches that were started through the Roman Empire were started for Jews that always would go back to Jerusalem, and some of them got saved at the day of Pentecost. Others after that, they began to reach, they began to love the Jewish community, and the result was in some of these cities, including Rome, Churches began to bring in Gentile believers as well. But here's the rub. When the Jewish people went to pagan towns and cities, they tended to live as an enclave. They tended to do life as a subculture. They had their own little synagogue. They did their own stuff. They cared for each other. They didn't want, they, the key word that marked their communities was the word separated. They were separate. Now all of a sudden... These worldly guys are coming in. You know, the, the, the guy that's totally immersed in the world somehow gets saved. And now he's a part of the, the, the Jewish background Christian community. And he's bringing in all these perspectives and cultural backgrounds. And, I mean, he's, he's worldly. He's liberal. He's got, I mean, he thinks different about a lot of stuff. But he loves Jesus. The Jewish Christians love Jesus. But loving Jesus the way this guy might think of loving Jesus and loving Jesus the way these guys love Jesus doesn't always look the same. Maybe these guys have different music. Maybe they have different convictions. Matter of fact, we know they did have different convictions. Romans chapter 14 tells us that. Paul addresses one of those convictions. He says, you know, some of you guys go into the marketplace, the butcher shop, and you buy meat. You have no problem buying meat. You're looking for the best deal. You buy the cheapest meat per pound. You take it home, you eat it, you have no problem, even though you know that some of that meat had been offered to pagan idols as a sacrifice, but now they sell it to the butcher. You go, you have no problem. You think, who cares where the meat came from? We just got the better. I mean, we're just going to eat it. 
The Gentile Christians, no problem. The Jewish Christians, problem. Remember, their whole word is separation. Well, where are you going to draw the line? You're going to start by, I mean, why don't you just go worship the pagan idols? I mean, if you're going to buy their meat after, I mean, you remember where that meat came from? It was a sacrifice. You know, you say, well, that sounds crazy. Well, it didn't to them. And so Paul addresses that issue. Some of them in the Jewish church were totally teetotal. He says this in Romans 14. Others felt it was okay to drink wine. He's saying, look it, I recognize you. You're, you're merging cultures. You're merging ethnicities. And it's dicey. Here's what happened. The Jews had been the big dogs in the churches, right? I mean, they had the theological background. You know, they could quote Isaiah 53, and they knew Genesis. I mean, they could tell you the, you know, they, they knew all the spiritual theology behind the Messiah, who the Gentiles have recently embraced. But they don't know Jesus' heritage. I mean, they don't even know what, what it means that the Lord our God is one Lord. They never had one Lord. All of a sudden, they do. So these guys have so much more going for them. They're still the mucky mucks, the influencers in the churches, right? Now, all of a sudden, for five years, they're gone. They're out. Five years, the churches keep developing. Five years, more people get saved. Five years, people that were, were non-influencers become more influencers, and all of them have one thing in common. They are not Jewish heritage. And now Nero comes back. It's five years later. And all these guys are welcome to come back into the church, Jewish background. And they walk into a church they hardly know. They know these people love Jesus. They love Jesus. But man, this is hard. They come in. They, they, they'd been the influencers. Everybody depended on them for theological thought. But now all of a sudden, there's so many more people that love Christ. And, and they come with cultural stuff. They come with personal convictions that, ah, it's different. It doesn't feel safe anymore. So Paul writes a letter in AD 56 or 57, and he says, I know this is going on. I know what's happening. This is real tension. I get it. We're, God is starting something new in the church, in the, in the, in the body of Christ. The kingdom of Jesus is different Man, it's going to take bending and learning and shaping and, and, and recognizing that we're not all the same at all. Our backgrounds are different. Our values are different. Our, our thinking is different. The Jews, you know, the holy huddle, that's how they do life in a city. These Gentiles, man, <laughs> I do life with everybody. I mean, these are my pals. I want them to come to Jesus. I can't just holy huddle. I got to do life with these guys in order to bring them to Christ. You see this stuff? I mean, this is real stuff. It's practical stuff. Homeschoolers with public schoolers, social drinkers with teetotalers, classical musicians with Christian rappers, Republicans with, Demo Republicans with Democrats, multicultural, multiracial, multi-socioeconomic backgrounds, multiple ethnicities, cultures coming together. But Paul is saying, guys, guys, if we can become one in Jesus, if we can all be passionate about Christ and learn to, to honor each other and trust each other, 
we can change the world for Christ because we have a culture of discord. We have a culture of ethnicities and races that are, that are upset and angry and distrustful. And he says, the church can be the beacon on the hill. And so, guys, I'm writing you a letter. It's called the Book of Romans. And I'm going to talk to you theologically about what you need to realize and think in order to live differently. I'm going to talk about really practical issues in the book, about how you live out your differences. This book is a real book for real people in real time. And if we lose the chance to see it that way by thinking it's just a theology book, we miss the beauty of what this book is about. It is a book to put theology on skates and go right into our culture. We're going to look at the book in this way. I'm going to look at it in four different sermon series. There'll be gaps between parts of them along the way over the next year and a half, actually, it's going to take. We'll have some other little things through there. But the first thing, and, and they're all, I think the book of Romans is talking about our shared experience. This is the basis of our doing life together. He starts with our shared position as humans, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. That's what we're going to look at. He's going to say, this is what it means to be human. And he says, you need to understand what humanness is. You need to have a common perspective as believers of what humanness is. You need to understand race. You need to understand, but much more than that, you need to understand the issues that culture is confronting with. I've said this before, I've said it at the Thinking Like a Christian seminar, throughout the history of the church, there have been certain theological attacks that the church has faced that God used in that season of time to give clarity to the beliefs of the church. In the early 300s, there was the attack on the nature of Christ, and some of the many things that we think, you know, we talk about Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, I believe he's both those things. They didn't talk that way in the first and second centuries. Nobody thought about it. They thought about it because heretics came along and started arguing that Jesus isn't really a man or, you know, Jesus isn't really God. He's, you know, he's just a form. And so they wrestled and they wrestled and they wrestled and they came out with their understanding of a theology of Christology. The same thing happened in the latter part of the 300s where where they had to come with a theology of sin because there was a guy named Pelagius who, who had so diminished the concept of sin, basically saying, you know, nobody starts with the nature of sin. You know, everybody just starts like a blank slate and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and the way he played all that out, it wasn't even really in need of a Savior Jesus. And so Augustine said, no, we need to understand where our tendencies come from, how powerful sin is in our life. And, and so doctrines that we would accept today without a bat of an eye, came from the church wrestling with harmardiology, doctrine of sin. So it was true with the doctrine of bibliology with men like John Wycliffe and others. And then in the Reformation, the doctrine of salvation, where the Reformers hid their, their great sola fide, we mean, which means only faith, not faith and works, uh, only sola scriptura, not scripture and tradition. All those things came because the church was assailed. We are living, in my opinion, and I'd argue this pretty strong, we are living in a day when the church is being assailed by a doctrine, a school of doctrine that I think is, is a stronger attack in this particular school of theology than the church has ever faced. 
It is the doctrine of anthropology. It is the theology of human beings. If you think of every hot potato that is going on in our culture, that we as Christians are trying to think not only how do I respond to that, but what do I believe about that? I mean, how do I love people with that? But more than that, I mean, what do I think? I mean, they're raising questions I never even thought about, about gender. There's questions about sexuality. There's questions about the definition of marriage. There's questions about when does life start. There's questions about when do I have the right to have life stop. There's questions about all kinds of things. The more every, I could, I, there's questions about racism. There's questions about genocide or there's, there's illustrations of genocide. Every hot button cultural issue today is anthropological. And I believe with all my heart, if Jesus doesn't return in the next generation, we as a church at large are going to have to wrestle with every one of these issues. We are going to have to formulate our understanding of what is true humanly. What is human? Well, Romans chapter 1 through 3 talks about every one of those topics I just talked about. It's a scary season to go through those messages for me. I mean, I, we're hitting every hot-button topic. That's why I do it in the summer when you're all gone. But the, <laughs> the we are, but he says you've got to understand your humanness. It's, it's the answer to racism. You've got to understand what race is, that the Bible doesn't even ever call anybody a color. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It's totally irrelevant to biblical definition of human beings. Ethnic backgrounds does affect. It does shape. But race is not something that is even mentioned in Scripture because it is not even on the page. We need to understand, though, what does it mean to have different ethnic backgrounds that are shaping us, molding us. How do we merge those together? There's so many things here. We're going to look, at, secondly, at the shared privileges under grace. That'll be another series, Romans 3, the latter part, chapter 8. This is the most famous part of Romans. What does it mean to live under grace is the theme. Uh, to have grace being the means uh, to have what's called, the reformers called an alien righteousness. A righteousness is not my own, that, that's, that's given to me by someone else, Christ himself. What does that mean? How do we get that? What difference does it make? Number three, we're going to look at a series on the shared participation in God's sovereign plan. In Romans 9 through 11, God talks about, through Paul, all ethnicities. He talks about the ethnic background of, of the Jews and what his plan is for them, what it's not. But he also talks about the ethnic plan for other cultures and other... He gives God's panorama of history. It's, again, part of his plan. Paul says, I'm telling you this not as a parenthesis, like this doesn't really matter. This is still in the theme. You need to understand this to do life together and to understand each other as designed by God. Grace speaks to us theologically. In these 11 chapters, it speaks to the practical issues of our lives. I have a friend. He's probably one of my two or three closest friends on the, on the ABWE board. His name is Charles. Charles is a, uh, this picture doesn't do him justice. He's 6'6". Um, Charles is um, uh, just resigned as the president of a college to go full-time into a ministry that God has opened to him. It is a ministry where he is often invited in to major cities in America, and he comes in because he, he's close friends with Tony Dungy and other um, 
athletic people. Johnny Erickson Tata is a very close friend. He speaks at their conference every year. But he, he goes into cities and gathers together the law enforcement leaders and representatives of Black Lives Matter to have a dialogue. And he, his goal is to have them hear each other and to process together and to learn together. He's done this in secular environments. He's done it when there's more of a Christian emphasis. But I love what he calls his ministry. Here's what he calls his ministry. He doesn't call it race relations. He calls it grace relations. He believes that grace is the foundation for racial harmony and for healing of racism, that we are one race, that we are one blood, that we serve under one God, and he plays this out, and, and he, he is imbibing the realities of the book of Romans, which is his grace that, that teaches us to live in harmony with those with different cultural experiences than ours. We're going to look in these three series on the theology But then we're going to look in Romans 12 through 16, the last series, about the practical outworking of it, their shared pattern for human living that we have that is the practical source of living in harmony. And chapter 12, for instance, Paul talks about how to live when you're horribly wronged, when you as an individual or ethnic group crave vengeance. He talks about that in Romans 12. What do you do with your, your, we would say, appropriate desire for vengeance? And how do you handle that? What do you do when you're wronged or when your entire people group has been wronged? He talks in Romans 13, how do you live as citizens with governments you don't trust? Romans 14, how do you do life with other believers when you have different personal convictions the book is practical. It's written for real people in real time today. It speaks to the issues of our lives. It gives us a big view of God. It gives us a glorious view of Christ. But it gives us an incredibly helpful view of living in harmony in a way our culture is not. But if there's one area where the church can model Christ and show Christ, it's living differently through the power of Jesus. Lord, we look to you today. God, I just take you, pray you take some of these seed thoughts and make us hungry to learn. Show us Christ. Show us his beauty. Show us your glory. Show us ourselves. Um, make us humble, gentle, loving people. who through the power of Christ really are embracing the truths that this book is written to give us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now go in peace to love, serve, and enjoy the Lord.